Thank you, Miss Becky. Hey, grab your Bibles and let's find the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. The sermon's going to come from 2 Kings chapter 5 today. Brick, that's a surprise to you, huh? Right? Curveball. Brick is a pastoral intern here. He and I have been talking all week about a different sermon. So, ta-da! All right. You know what we're doing right now? If you're new to the church, let me catch up. We are in the middle of what we think is going to be revolutionary for us. We want to be as healthy as we can be. For the next five years, we're committed uh, to a goal that we're calling the 5 by 5 by 5 plan. In five years, we want our congregation to have an impact on 5,000 people and families. We want to change their trajectory with God. For people who were lost to become saved, for Christians who were out of church to get back in the church, for people who thought God was mad at them to open their heart to, them, to Him and relate differently to Him, we want to see... 5,000 people in the Pine Belt touch. And that may be a, a middle school daughter that becomes the first witness in a Christian household because you invited her to youth group and now she goes back to her home and is the light of Christ in a house that doesn't have the light of Christ. Or it could look like a thousand other things. A college student who hears the gospel for the first time and takes a witness back to their home state, home country, family, or changes the course of their future. 5,000 families impacted in the next five years. And we want to tell 500 stories about the cel to celebrate what God's done. The faithfulness that He's shown as we try to do this. How we saw Him move. I'm looking forward to that. But our first focus you know, for the last two months has been we're trying to train ourselves to be on mission all week. We're trying to train ourselves to remember that we cannot get lulled to sleep. As the church we have the gospel of Jesus. We have the light and hope of Christ, and we've got to give it. Like, we are the only hope the world has. And we want to be intentional about that. And so what we're doing for the last two months, we've challenged the church that in this year, we want to make 25,000 connections for Christ. 25,000 times all around the Pine Belt, we want a Carterville Baptist Church member to be listening to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit says, that person right there, just give them a, just give them a nudge for me. And you, and you invite them to church, or you invite them to your home for prayer, or you pray and share the gospel with them if they don't know Christ, but you are trying to make a connection for the kingdom 25,000 times. 25,000 people being invited to church or into your home or to connect with Jesus Christ personally through sinner's prayer. Unbelievable. But that's every worshiper just making one connection a week, and that's the potential that our church has. We're trying to push for that because we want to be healthy on that level. Well, we realize that one of the keys for us is we've got to learn to have gospel conversations with people. We're going to have to learn how to tell people why we have faith in Christ and what Jesus has done in our lives without any hypocrisy, without any judgmentalism, the best tool that we have for a gospel conversation is simply an accurate understanding of what God has done in your own life. But what we find when we explore this is that honestly, we haven't stopped and had to process our story. And because of that, if we get the chance to share our testimony with somebody, we're really sloppy. Like we don't, it's not focused. We don't know exactly how to tell them what God's done. We ramble. We go on and on. And we've lost the attention of our friend. And so... To sharpen the skill of recognizing what God's done. To give all of us the ability to use our story in a gospel conversation. I have a challenge for the church from now until Thanksgiving. Outside the exits of the church on all of the tables, 
you'll find these white cardstock sheets that say, this is my story. At the bottom, it has a place for a name and the theme. In the hallways outside the sanctuary, here and here, you'll notice that we have wires suspended for displaying the stories. And this is what I'm asking every worshiper to do. If you've been saved and baptized, if you're 10, if you're 78, if you're struggling with God, I'm inviting you to be a part of this. Here's what I want you to do. Take the card. Think about your story with God so far. Process it. Cut all the fluff out and get to the point. Understand what God has done with you. How is your story unique? Well, I want you to write that on the card. And no, you can't staple ten cards together. The point is that you have to think and focus. I want you to identify what is the key theme for your story. For me, it was playing church because I felt like as I grew up in the Bible Belt South, I was on a church pew every Sunday. I had a reverence and a fear for God. But throughout the week, from Monday to Saturday, my values, goals, and desires were the same as everybody around me. And it wasn't until junior college, my freshman year at East Mississippi Community College, that I saw disciples of Christ who were living totally differently than the world, who had something different about them. And I, I fell in with them, and I started to follow Jesus and I stopped playing church, and that made all the difference in my life. It's changed who I'm married, how I raise my kids, what I do for a living. It has given me purpose. It changed everything when I stopped playing church. The theme of my testimony is playing church. And I can tell you my testimony on this sheet of paper. Now, what I want you to do is get this piece of paper, wrestle with it, Make a first draft and a second draft and a twelfth draft if you have to until you can tell your story on this sheet of paper. Until you can identify the theme of your story. So that you'll be able to tell it in two minutes or less if God gives you the chance for a gospel conversation this year. When you're done, would you do one more thing? This is my favorite part. When you're done, when you've written yours out, get over your pride for just a second and hang it on the wires outside the walls of the sanctuary so that the rest of the church family can browse those hallways in their free time and get to know what God has done in each of our lives. Mine's hanging out there. Church staffs are already on the wires, and we're waiting for yours. I can see an image in my head three weeks from now when there are just white sheets of paper all the way down that hall as we testify to how God has worked in our lives, as we give Him credit for it, knowing that every piece of paper means that somebody in our church family wrestled with their story and now has it focused enough that you can use it in a gospel conversation. I'm excited about that. Let's fill up those wires. Stay after church. Do it today if you like. I want to tell you another man's story. To support this, we're preaching through a sermon series on stories. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we find a guy named Naaman and his story is so simple. But his story is probably like some of yours, maybe, maybe like mine in some ways. God asked this man to do something very, very simple. It was almost too simple. In fact, it was so simple that for this guy Naaman, he almost didn't come to the Lord. In other words, God's going to basically tell this guy to go wash in the Jordan River. I'll tell you the story and we'll see if there's an overlap. Here's how the story goes. Israel was the northern kingdom of all God's people. Ten tribes lived up there. Their capital was Samaria. 
they were going through a very bad time in their life, but they did have a prophet named Elisha, and the prophet Elisha was fantastic. He had been mentored by the prophet Elijah. The power of God was on him, but the king didn't necessarily like him because the king was a Baal worshiper. Israel's greatest opponent was up north in Syria, capital city of Damascus, Aram the king. Well, his general of the armies of Syria was a great man named Naaman. One catch for Naaman. As many accolades as he had, as much respect as he had, the wealth he'd accumulated, his name known all over the nation. One little caveat that kept him up at night, he was a leper. He was struck with leprosy, and because he had this disease at a time period when it was misunderstood, it marked him. And as he lamented this, there was actually a slave girl in his house. She was an Israelite. A band of raiders had kidnapped her, and now she was Naaman's wife's handmaid. She was a servant, a slave in this guy's house. And one day she whispered to her mistress, there's a prophet in my country that could heal your husband. From the most unlikely source, word gets back to Naaman. He goes to the king, has a diplomatic meeting. He leaves with a letter, an official decree from the king, and all kinds of wealth. And he travels down to Israel, and he goes to the king of Israel, and he says, listen, I understand you've got a prophet down here who can heal me of this leprosy. I'm excited about that. I'm ready for a change. Something's got to give. Let's set this up. The king is terrified. A, because he knows Elisha doesn't like him. B, because the king doesn't think he can get this done. And the king thinks, here I am with a letter from the king of Assyria, and he's telling me to heal. I can't do it. Well, the story goes on. Naaman goes to Elijah's house, knocks on the door. Now, keep in mind, Naaman is a very important fellow. Everywhere he goes, he's greeted with a yes, sir, and maybe trumpets. I mean, maybe people you know, lining up to shake his hand. So he knocks on Elisha's door, and I think God was putting him to the test. When he knocks on Elisha's door, Elisha doesn't even come out. Like Elisha sends a messenger and says, I know what he needs. Go tell him to wash in the Jordan River. And Elisha's watching the game. He doesn't even move, right? Just kidding. Naaman doesn't love this. Naaman is not used to being the second most important person in the room, right? But Naaman's pride is being challenged, and he's just been asked, listen very carefully, to do one very simple thing, small. Go baptize yourself in the Jordan River seven seven times. He's so angry. His pride is so offended that he gets into this pride battle with God, and he almost doesn't do it. Fortunately for him, another servant talks him into giving him a shot. And Naaman bends his knee to God for a moment. Puts his pride aside for a second. And he does this one small thing that seems beneath him. And he comes out for the seventh time. And the Bible says his skin is as clean as a young man's. No more leprosy. His life was changed. I wonder if there are people in this room who for a year or for ten years or two weeks, God's been telling you to do some simple thing, small act of obedience. But because it is an offense to your pride, you won't do it. And so you and God have been locked in a gridiron stalemate for 20 years or two or two weeks. And you've talked yourself out of that act of obedience because you say to yourself, it's not that important. 
I'll do an important thing if God gives me an important thing. But what he's asking me to do, forgive my father? No, no, no. That, apologize to my wife? No, no, no. Tell my mom and dad I'm sorry for the last couple of years? No, no, no. These, I'm not going to do these things. The truth is, you say they're small, and they are, but they're really big. And the reason they're big is because they really represent a pride challenge between me and God over the contest of who's in charge. Will I do things you say if they're silly or if they make sense? Will I do the things that you say, even if they make me uncomfortable? So they seem small, and you say, I'm not going to do that. I would do it if God asked me to do something big and important. I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to tell you, they're actually huge. Because they represent your battle with God for whose will is going to win. Are you going to surrender to Him or not? We're going to walk through the story of Naaman in just a minute. And I want to show you how his story is very simple his life was changed when God asked him to do one simple thing. And listen to me. Until he did it, he was going to stay miserable. But the day he obeyed, everything changed. Let's read the story. Fantastic story. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. I want to just pause and show you one thing that I think is cool in the story. We're not talking about an Israelite. He's from Syria, Aram. He's a pagan. But the Bible just said God had given him victories. That should cause a believer to stop and say, wait a minute. I thought God was working down in Israel like from Samaria and Jerusalem. What's he doing working out of Damascus? Well, the truth is, in your Bible, you're reading our faith story, and we believe that there's one God sovereign over all the earth, and he works in all the nations, and that blows people's mind. And it blows their mind in the Old Testament, too, but here you've got in the book of 2 Kings already a recognition that God is working all over. Here we go. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means... The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Boy, the king of Israel is hes a mess right now. Because he knows he can't do it. And he thinks he's been put in the middle of a diplomatic display just to put him in a bad spot so that he can have 
one more excuse for one more raid, one more war, one more season of conquest. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Then Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry, and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the rivers Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Pause. I want you to identify with Naaman for just a second. He really expected to be greeted better. His pride is offended. He even had in his mind that if he ever did yield to God for a moment, he had an expectation of what God would do. Send the great prophet out, call on God in a big display, wave your hand over it. That's how we would have done it back in Syria when we're calling out to our God. He was disappointed because God didn't do what he wanted to do. He was disappointed because of his national pride. Time out. He's got better rivers than the Jordan. His patriotism was offended. He had not yet learned, as we remember, that God rules the whole earth. Every nation is his. His sons and daughters all over the globe. Well, anyway, he's angry. He's offended. He's wrestling with his pride and his patriotism. And he is about to go home with leprosy. Nothing changed. I'll bet there are some people in church today, high schoolers, senior adults, everybody in between. I'll bet there's some people in church today who are where Naaman is. God's told you a simple thing to do, and for whatever reasons, you haven't done it yet, and you are in a pride contest to show him that you can go to your grave without bending your knee. And you've got reasons too. They offended you. You're not going to forgive them. They hurt your feelings. They, how dare they talk to you like that? You deserve better. That you, you've got reasons too. I know better cures for this. We've got better rivers. You've got reasons. Naaman had reasons. My question is, are you ready for a change? Because you and God are not going to be where you need to be until you bend your knee and say yes, and you do the one simple thing that he gave you for your next step. You will be stuck on that step until you say yes. And so here's Naaman. Fortunately for Naaman, a second time, he's convinced by a servant. I love it that this powerful man, this warrior, this general, this wealthy leader of men is convinced twice by servants to do the right thing. I love it. Boy, in the scriptures, it's so true that God used the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And I hope we'll bend our knee to this gospel, even when it seems simple and beneath you, that you'll recognize in your pride that you're not where you think you are. Here we are, another servant, verse 13. 
So Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Well, that was a reasonable argument, and it's going to convince Naaman. I mean, if he told you to go up to the top of a mountain and spend a week fasting and then do that, you'd have done it. It's crazy to me that we want some big dramatic thing that draws on our strength, when oftentimes when God sends his solution, it's so simple. It's a clear act of obedience. It's a conversation that's long overdue. It's submission to a baptism that's 20 years late. It's you saying yes, putting your pride aside and allowing God to do the thing he's been telling you to do. Sometimes we want some big grand thing that costs a ton of money. And God saying, no, 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 you need my spirit and to yield to me. If he'd asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it, Naaman? So why don't you just go, just give it a shot. Baptize yourself seven times in the Jordan River. See what happens. So verse 14. So he went down, he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and he became clean like a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So it's pretty cool that Elisha would not even accept payment even after Naaman was healed. Like, now, what I think is really neat is that this time when Naaman comes back, Elisha comes out to speak with him. Like the test is over. You bent your knee to God. We're good. Let's have a conversation. But Elijah won't take any money because he needs Naaman to know that you cannot buy God off. No king can give you what you need. No wealth can satisfy the itch in your soul. Only the living God can, and he won't be bribed. And so Naaman has to realize that there's a God in Israel that is unlike anything he's considered in his life, and he goes home clean. But I want you to watch because this next little bit of the story blows my mind. Let me read it to you. Verse 17. If you will not, that is, if you will not let me pay you. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Can you imagine this? He's like, let me load my mules with dirt from Israel because from this day forward, I only will make sacrifices to the God of Israel. And I want to have dirt from Israel upon which to build the altar. Can I please take some dirt? Isn't it powerful who's calling who a servant here? Now, this great man, convinced twice by servants to yield to God, looks at Elijah, his father of the faith, the man that led him to the Lord, and says, Oh, I'm your servant. Can I please take dirt from your backyard so that I can worship your God? Can you imagine a life changed? What if powerful women and men all over the pine belt, arrogant, haughty, far from God, bent their knee this year to God because somebody as simple as you or me 
reached out to them with a connection to, to witness to them, to connect them to the body of Christ, to meet them in a time of need when the Spirit was moving and we didn't even know it. What if we saw one of those lives that couldn't be changed become changed? Nobody would have thought Naaman would go back to Aram and say, guys, from today forward, I lead our armies in the name of the living God. Everything about me has changed. Jesus brags on Naaman in Luke chapter 4. Don't turn your Bibles there, but just know that hundreds of years after this man's death, Jesus the Messiah is still preaching about him in a synagogue in Nazareth. Verse 18. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, and his master is the king, when my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow down there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah said. In other words, he says, Listen, part of my job is I've got to walk the king in when he goes to bend his knee to Rimon. I want you to know that these knees will never bend to Rimon. When I go down to hold the king, I'm doing my job, but my knees are bent to Yahweh God. What a powerful story. And listen to me. Guys, this dude left home trying to get well. He needed a doctor. He needed a little good medicine. He left to get rid of leprosy. He went home a worshiper of the living God. That is how powerful a connection for Christ can be when the Spirit of God is moving. And I want you to see the, the ping pong balls that were dropped in this display on this Sunday were dropped by a servant girl who was kidnapped from her home and said, you ought to give God a chance. I know that there's a prophet in my life. There's a prophet from my home who can give you what you need. You ought to meet him. And the rest of the story unfolds because a young servant girl who was a handmaid to a warrior's wife and thought she was unimportant in the cosmos said, I know of a God who can help you. Can I point you in his direction? She dropped her ping pong ball and Naaman starts his journey. And I just want to challenge this church that if we serve the Lord, we have no idea how many lives were changed. So I just want to ask you to consider a few things. Number one, she was absolutely different. If you were going to let Naaman tell his story, say, Naaman, tell us your story. I think this is what Naaman would say. If Naaman were dropping his sheet outside our walls, here's what he'd say. He'd say, God sent a witness I never would expect. This girl was the opposite of Naaman in every way. He was Syrian, she was Israel. They were arch enemies. He was a master, she was a servant, a slave in his house. He was educated, powerful, and wealthy. She was weak and had no strength. The only thing she had was the knowledge of the living God. And that's all she needed. I think the second thing he would have said after he said, I was really surprised by that witness, is he would have said, you know, I needed help, but I was looking in the wrong places. I thought my money could buy me healing. I went to my king. I went to your king. Even when I went to your prophet, I didn't like his plan. I thought I could do this some other way. I thought I could scratch that soul itch 
with my career, with my name, with my reputation, with my wealth, with my connections, with the king, with your king, with my army, with our victories, with my war. I spent my life trying to find what I needed, and I finally found it in the muddy waters of a miserable little river in the neighboring nation. But when I bent my knee to the living God, everything changed. I looked for what I needed in the wrong places. I think this is part of why Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. It's not because he's trying to hurt him or be rude or offend him. It's because I think he recognizes the battle that Naaman is fighting. It's a pride contest. And Elijah wants to help Naaman see clearly where he stands. You know what's crazy about this is there's a servant in the story. I didn't read this part. The last little bit, you can read it at lunch. There's a servant that works for Elisha. His name is Gehazi. Maybe he was the messenger that went to the door. We don't know. But after he watches Naaman go away without giving any money, anything, he scratches his head and he says, man, my boss just blew it. He missed a great opportunity here. And so he runs after Naaman and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what? Elisha uh, had some company come and he was wondering, could we get two sets of clothes and a little bit of cash for them? Just a little something. Oh, sure, anything for Elisha. Here, take it back to your master. So he runs home and hides it. Elisha says, Gehazi, where you been, man? And he says, watching the game, sir. Just kidding again. He says, no, 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 I know where you were. Don't you think that by God's spirit, in my spirit, I knew exactly where you were. I saw what happened. I saw you come back. Gehazi, it didn't have to happen this way. But because you went behind my back, and you took the glory that God deserved. The leprosy that Naaman gave up, it's yours to keep. And Gehazi struck with leprosy. It's cool that Naaman comes from outside the church with great faith and he is cured. Gehazi grows up inside the church, lacked faith, and went home afflicted. And I look at us and I just wonder as we listen to Naaman's story, how many of us have some lessons to learn? The third thing he would say is that uh, God made me test my pride. And I almost failed. I think if Naaman were here with me today, first of all, I'd probably call him sir because I bet he was big and buff, tough-looking dude. But if Naaman, the warrior, was here with me today, I think he would look at our church and say, I almost went home a leper. Do you understand that my pride was so strong that I almost did not go down to your river? Do you know that my ethnic superiority is so strong that I thought no river in your land could be used by your God. Do you understand that I almost went home with leprosy? What a fool! Because I was in a contest with God. Don't go home today wrestling with God. Bend your knee. It was so simple. But it represented probably the ultimate question in your life. Your will... Or his will. Where are you yet? And I'm just asking you, are you willing to bend your knee to God and say yes to whatever the next thing is? Serving in the church? Witnessing to a friend? Starting a daily prayer time? Apologizing to your spouse? Your parents? Redeeming your senior year? College? From a different mindset? Baptism? that you put off for too long? 
praying for a chance to witness for the first time in your life? Has God told you something that's simple for your next step and you just haven't taken it yet? I think if Naaman was here, he would say, my story goes like this, my pride almost sent me home, an enemy of God. I think the last thing that Naaman would say if Naaman were filling out one of these cards for us is that he would tell us that he went home a different man. The day he yielded his will to God's will, everything changed. He's carrying dirt on the backs of his donkeys so that he can be a worshiper of God. And I wonder how many of us, maybe from today forward, we need to build an altar in our own homes so that as fathers we can lead a genuine, unhypocritical devotion to God in our household. So that as mothers, we can pass the faith down to the next generation and get out of the rat race, out of the social contest, and fight for the faith of our family. Maybe some of us need to carry some dirt home and set up an altar and say, I am going to go home a different person. From this day forward, I worship God alone. I won't build an altar to an idol. I will not bend my knee to the gods of political parties or ideologies, to wealth, to commerce, economics, or my own name. I worship God alone. Naaman, if he were here, he would say, listen to me, everything changed when I came out of that water. When I told God yes, when I gave him the reins, everything changed. I think if Naaman hung his story outside the hallways. His theme would be one simple step. And I think he would tell you that he was a man who had everything going for him. But he had leprosy. And it caused him to seek help. And he was put to the test by God. He almost said no. Because in his pride, he nearly rejected one simple step that God put in front of him. But when he said yes and did the one thing, the one simple thing, that simple act of obedience opened the floodgate and he became a worshiper of the living God. Gave him control of his life and everything was different. I wish Naaman would write his story and hang it on our walls so that we could read it and be encouraged by it. And I wonder if anybody here today is encouraged by it. Is there anybody here today that says, Ben, I, I kind of identify with Naaman. I get it. I understand that. There is one simple step that God's put in front of me. And I haven't said yes to it yet, and I need to. I'm, t I'm telling you, there's no day like today. There's no reason for you to leave God's house today without making a, a vow to the Lord that you will forgive, that you'll show mercy, that you'll have that conversation, you'll send that text message, meet for coffee tomorrow, and make it good. No reason in the world for you not to say, fill the baptistry next Sunday I'm in it. There's no reason in the world for you not to call Mike and say, I don't know how to teach Sunday school, but I know I'm supposed to. If you'll teach me this year, I'll teach a class next year. There's no reason in the world for you not to become the disciple maker that God's been calling you to be. There's no reason in the world. But what usually stands in our way is one small act of obedience that we can't get over because our pride is deadlocked with God's. And I'm just asking today, would you commit to your one simple next step? Whatever that is for you. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
would you ask for salvation, forgiveness? Today, give him your life. Last week, we heard Michael Vines share the story of his family when God told them to explore foster care. And he took his one step, and they started to learn about foster care. And they opened their home, and they've changed lives. And it's changed them. They've invited everybody that's interested just to learn more, to come to the choir room at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Maybe God's poking you, and you want to come to the choir room at 4 to learn more about foster care. Maybe that's your next one simple step. Maybe God's telling you to get connected in a Sunday school class, to ask forgiveness, whatever God's telling you to do. I'm asking you to take your one simple next step. I want to pray for us. I want to invite our musicians to take the platform and lead us in worship. And gang, as we get ready to leave church today, don't rush out. Don't be in a race. It's not in a hurry. Stop and think a minute. What does God want you to do? And you just do it. I'm here at the front of the church. If you come forward, I'll be quickly joined by the rest of our staff, our ministers. We'd love to minister to you. We'd love to pray with you. The altars are open for prayer. But church, let's go dip in the river seven times, if that's what he says to do. Father, we ask for your grace. We don't pretend to understand all of your ways, but boy, we wish we did. Today, God, we can clearly call out to you and say that we love you, we admire you, we honor you, we worship you alone. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage of that servant girl, that we would reach out to see somebody's life story changed when they connect with you. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the, the courage of naming to finally do battle with his own pride and get over it. Obey you and see what future you have for us. Father, I ask that all over our sanctuary, your spirit would make clear in our minds what you intend for us to do with our next step. That your spirit would give us the grace and the courage that we need to have those conversations. In Jesus' name we pray.